I recently interviewed Christina Hu, the director of the Write-In Taiwanese Census Campaign, about the Pew Research Report on Asian Communities, which misrepresented the Taiwanese. In that episode, episode number 148, Christina briefly mentioned her documentary filmmaking. So I thought that now would be a good time to share an interview that I did with her back in 2018 about her filmmaking. Here's the interview. You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. I was first introduced to today's guest on the podcast, Christina Hu, through a mutual friend about a year ago. At the time, Christina was working on a documentary film about Taiwan's blacklist. And now, here we are a year later, and Christina has completed her short documentary film called Blacklist. I'm so glad to have the chance to sit down and talk with her about the film and the documentary filmmaking process. Welcome to the podcast, Christina. Thank you so much, Felicia. It's an honor to be here. Can you just tell me a little bit about your background and um, your latest documentary, Blacklist, and what's behind that? What inspired you to create that? So it's pretty interesting that you like the whole idea of the Blacklist because that's kind of a very common term for a lot of di dictatorships, like a lot of regimes. A lot of society have that experience. So I think the word blacklist is always in my mind when I was a kid that I was born in Taiwan and grew up there until I was 11. And I moved back in 1991. But before that, in Taiwan, there was a lot of transition. But I was a kid. It's like through like information that our adults talked about and the, the music and the shows and comedy. And there was this album called The Blacklist. The full name in Mandarin was Heiming Dan Gong Zuo Si. Basically means like the Blacklist Workshop. And oh. it has some of the funniest like satire and parody songs. Wow. So one song used to be like traffic in Taipei used to be really bad. Is it through the difficulties of uh, modernization, then the song is about how the taxi driver <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> but then he justifies, he tells the lady, don't be scared in Taiwanese. <laughs> <laughs> so basically justifying that, oh, don't be scared of my driving. I learned my driving when I served in the army and drove the tank. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, that's so hilarious. It's pretty funny. And like, I think that's part of the Taiwanese culture too, sort of this sense of humor, kind of like making the ridiculous claim even more ridiculous. And the sense of humor got them through some of the difficult transitions of like industrialization in Taiwan, like the economic growth. I mean, there is a lot of winners too, like, but there is also a lot of losers as well, like through the economic transition through, through export, used to be a very export-oriented country. And now that certain amount of business has moved to other cheaper labor-oriented country in Asia too. So it's interesting to see how my parents' generation, like <laughs> the creative art, have dealt with some of the difficult subjects of the societal transition. I also remember a lot about this one song it basically is a repetition of a phrase saying, like, uh, I'm very hurt and there's no word to say. And just like in, in Taiwanese, it's xiong xing mo wei. So that's and one of the lyrics that repeats in that yeah. song. Wow. Yeah, the series of songs, the album, and um, that kind of formed my childhood. 
memories of informed me a bit of like the sentiment and the feelings of people in Taiwan.、Mm. And that was the album called "A Heiming Dan Gongzhuoshi Black the Blacklist Workshop." Oh, that's interesting. So, well, I learned something、yeah. new because to me, the blacklist has a very specific meaning, referring to the martial law era, the white terror era, in which a lot of people were put on the blacklist and not allowed to enter or leave Taiwan. Okay, so what were some of the challenges in making the film? Some of the challenges is actually pretty universal to documentary filmmaking. Basically,、uh, you come up with a concept. That you think is worthwhile to make to inform people about, but it, it's nonfiction. So you would think that usually you have a plan, and、uh, except that in real life, when you go interview people, then that actually has a lot of、uh, ad hoc, like whatever、mm-hmm. happens that、mm-hmm. day, whatever depends on what that day, how the interviewee felt, or what the memory was like, how the delivery was like. So then depends、mm-hmm. on that, and how the、mm-hmm. story can be told. Not a scripted show, so. The challenge is fairly interesting, sort of trying to present real life to sort of oral history, but bring it into a film format, and so that's a pretty universal one. And personal challenge is that this is a fairly close story to my own heritage,、mm-hmm. and so when you get to the editing stage, it was pretty hard cutting some of the stuff. But I have to think about it in a way that not just what interests me. I mean, I I guess I can make a film just. For me,、mm-hmm. <laughs> but ultimately, I want people to be entertained as well. So that became a personal challenge of addressing the issue that I can feel very personally connected to,、mm-hmm. and then, but at the same time, have to be very objective about it. So, right, right. So talking、yeah. about the cutting and editing, like how much footage did you have, and how, what did you end up cutting it down to, so that the listeners have an idea of what you had to deal with. For my first film on Blacklist, I interviewed three individuals out in New York area, and each of them had about two hours, so I had about six hours of footage、mm-hmm. total. And then, then you add on to other footage of just B-rolls, like shooting them going around and trying to get a sense of like their life、uh-huh. and give people a sense of what their activities like in the present day.、Uh-huh. So that total together is probably like seven hours of like raw footage to go right. through.、Uh-huh. And、um, then in terms of then piecing the three stories together、mm-hmm. and finding the. Key focus that connects one one another together.、Mm-hmm. When it's all said and done, that was like a ten minute piece. Wow! Wow! Why?、Yeah. Why ten minutes? It's also a formatting of like the restriction of、uh, where I was going to show at Brooklyn Television, and they wanted a ten minute bit. But usually, television like they would either get like a half an hour, so like twenty five minute.、Mm-hmm. So there are rooms to expand out the story, but honestly, sometimes it's hard. It's it's Trying to move the story along so that I would say like the ratio is probably if for every hours of footage you probably get like maybe five minutes from it. Oh wow!、Yeah. That's wow. that's the way it、yeah. seemed to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's my first film. I had about four ladies, and、mm-hmm. each of them have about like three hours of interview with each、mm-hmm. of them,、mm-hmm. and then we condense it down to like a thirty-minute film. Oh, can you talk about that、yeah. film a little bit? So the film is called Her Journey. So.、Uh-huh. 
the focus is on women in war and specifically about one of my friend's grandmother's story by way of her own mother's story too. Uh-huh. Because during World War II, she, her heritage is Jewish growing up in Odessa, Ukraine. And they always heard about the story of World War II. World War II actually shaped a lot of Soviet Union identity, Soviet identity in general. Uh-huh. And she said that she wanted to focus on women because that's part of the untold story that most of the story in the Soviet era have been mostly highlighting men who right. had their life at the forefront and never talked about the home front, the sacrifice people back at home had to, had to make. And in the Soviet Union during that time, there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice at the home front too. And there is very little food because all that war efforts was put to the front, to, to the war front. And even when they're trying to evacuate, so it was pretty interesting making that film, thinking about like Soviet Union and the history of that. And the memory of it now is always being a this powerful empire, right? But before too, it was actually going through a fair amount of stage of internal fighting because the central planning was facing a lot of resistance, but World War II actually solidified that. And during World War II is the ultimate test to central planning because you have to get the army ready. You have to ship all the resources to the front and then centralizing this mass amount across mass amount of territory and fight this superior army of the Nazis. So it was pretty interesting history. And I was more interested in the world history aspect. So uh-huh. our budget was $5,000 because she got $5,000 from her fellowship, the, the Jewish Fund fellowship here uh-huh. and we ended up spending most of it on working on a graphic to show the the breadth of the, of the landscape of where they travel from city from beginning to end and coming back to show the distance that's traveled and also in editing so we had a professional editing person my for my first film and so we interviewed four ladies out in brooklyn right uh, yeah and they it's about them recalling the memory of them traveling with their mothers, trying to get on a, just like a cargo wagon because most of the trains were actually, you have to have some connection to the war. Otherwise, like you have to find your own transportation. And there's a sort of a way they call it, they're not allowed to say them, call themselves refugees. They had to say they were uh, self-evacuees. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting that we're talking about this since it's also like Women's History Month, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. One of the most interesting I remember from interviews with these ladies is that how much they knew their survival was tied to leaving and they understood what their mothers have like been able to scrape together so they had enough food to eat and then have a place mm-hmm. to, to survive in. A lot of them at the end, and they know what their mothers did were something really great. Mm-hmm. But I asked the question, do you think your mother is a hero? And a lot of them, they would, would like pause a little bit and didn't even think about like that their mothers taking the kids, getting on a train, finding housing, uh-huh. uh, finding work. And most of them end up being, um, they, they, they were all spread out actually. Actually, a lot of two of them were in in Uzbekistan, and one of them was in Euro Mountain, and another one I think she went all the way to like Tajikistan, uh-huh. like even further. Yeah, but these were not the most comfortable places, and right. 
in, in the foreign land. Yeah. So but it's interesting just, what you say. You said these women, when you ask them, do they think that their mothers were heroes for what they did, or you know, yeah, they actually didn't respond that you know, agree with that or yeah. affirm that. I just think that for women for a certain generation, maybe women's achievement were never really highlighted or mm -hmm. never viewed as achievement mm -hmm. or it was just like oh well it was just survival she mm -hmm. had she had to she right. did what she had to do right 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 that particular documentary is on youtube people can find that it is, for it on youtube the yeah. all my films are through brooklyn television and so if you type in brooklyn television my name and then her journey is is the first film and then blacklist is the other one mm -hmm. and you'll be able to find them on youtube mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so how did you even get on this path like what what is it that interests you about um, making documentary films i always loved history and in between my college and high school i took a gap year and I went to Germany and lived there for a year. Mm -hmm. I got a scholarship that it was a Congress Bundestag scholarship. It was a scholarship that was founded after World War II, trying to build a better bond between the German and American people. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> pretty fairly interesting uh, that I got that. Yeah, that's and kind of unusual was, to take a gap year so early. Most A lot of people do that after college, but you did it before you even went to college. So I took a gap year in between college and high school, and that was 1999. And that was the year that they still had Deutsche Mark and Euro both on the uh, on the prices of all the brochures at, at stores because that was the transitional year between Deutsche Mark being uh, being abandoned and taking on Euro for oh, okay. Germany. Right. Yeah. Wow. But it was 10 years after it was 1999. So it was 10 years after the wall the wall fell in Berlin mm, that Germany right. united uh -huh. united. And it was also the year that there was a transition that between a conservative party, CDU, to go to SPD. So mm -hmm. it's interesting year yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. to be there. And my host family was great at showing me around Germany. And uh, my host dad grew up in the 60s in Germany, and he used to be a kind of a hippie. Uh -huh. So he still he um he loved all these like rock music from. Canada, like the Who's, <laughs> introduced me to them, and my host brother um, introduced me to Monty Python because they were Anglophiles, basically. Yeah. But where I lived was North Westphalia, and that used to be the the British quartile. Because uh -huh. after the war, there were like four sections. Uh -huh. so it's pretty interesting year. Germany was changing, and I, I remember one of the classmates telling me how that Germany was going to benefit so much from European Union. And yeah, he, he was right. Yeah. And he was an 18 year old kid yeah, back yeah. then. <laughs> wow. so a lot has happened since 1999. So. Sure, yeah. Yeah. And so that's where you started to have this interest in the history, and then it led to the filmmaking. And Well, my whole life I've been interested in history. So in Taiwan, I read a lot of history from the, like the, the earlier dynasty uh, various dynasties in china and uh, my my mom would leave me at the library so okay. i was the new story i was like did you know this one guy and this other guy and this other guy form a brothership mm -hmm. <laughs> like, 
brotherhood to fight like another dynasty and then one and there's all these like like the the um the three kingdoms all these like early history right. and anyway so i was always interested in history i loved my geiger when i was a kid and thinking about like the world like the world view and i loved ting ting too mm-hmm. and Because I'm taking a long way around to like. <laughs> That's okay. So when I came to the United States, I love American history too. I was I and I also took European history. And then when I went to Germany, so at the end of that one year in Germany, I was coming back to the United States to start uh, college. And my mom was asking me what I wanted to do, what mm-hmm. I wanted to study, mm-hmm. and then. I told her like when I was a kid, they they had subscription to National Geographic and how like Ting Ting traveled the world. I right. I want to be a photojournalist. Yeah. And she then, said no. <laughs> What was her reaction? Dentistry. <laughs> <laughs> so were yeah. you a biology or chemistry major or something? Or <laughs> uh, I end up to be a political science major. Uh-huh. It was a it was a funny time that uh, so first first year I when I got to I, I went to University of Virginia for undergrad and with the arts and science and my mom was still sort of thinking maybe I'll do pre med but yeah. Uh, yeah all the courses I took were like either politics like related or history related mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there were at UVA there was a lot of courses on like modern Chinese history so mm-hmm. really covering from the The years after the communists mm-hmm. had taken over. I mean, there there are some that start covering like Chinese history from the turn of 20th century. So there's a lot of early history of Republic of China, mm-hmm. but most of it end up focusing on modern Chinese history, really looking at transition from Mao to Dan to mm-hmm. like like Great Leap Forward mm-hmm. and all this movement under under Mao and trying to make sense of it. And it was interesting. Most of the professors were.、Uh, American, yeah. But for my fourth year at UVA, there was one Chinese professor. But I always thought it was interesting that, like, if in order to study politics or history of a certain country, it seems like a lot of times you have to go outside the country. Like,、uh-huh. there are people like if you want to study American politics, you would be in the United States, right? If you want to study、uh-huh. German politics, you would go to Germany.、Uh-huh. But maybe in America, you have different like varieties, varieties. But like. Somebody couldn't. I don't know now, but back in like early two thousands, like I don't think you could be in China and study politics. Sure.、Uh, there is、yeah. just one. There's only one storyline, right? There's no way you can like write an argument about like what's taking shape or like really. There's no openness. Yeah.、It. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, you have a very interesting background because you grew up. You were born and grew up in Taiwan, and then you came to the U.S. What? When did? How old were you when you came to the U.S.? So I was eleven. I was born in Taiwan. The year that officially Taiwan and United States severed、um, relationships, and、mm-hmm. then growing up in Taipei, and it, I don't think that. Being, it was like not something that was like directly, like felt about like if you're Taiwanese versus like you're you're from like from mainland China. But like I remember in third grade though、mm-hmm. that there was this homework assignment. I think I've told you something about it before.、Uh-huh. 
is a regular homework assignment. You go home and ask your parents and fill out like which province from China,、uh, which province in China your family is from. Oh, yeah.、Oh. And that, I remember in third grade that I came back to school and I was telling my teacher that my dad said that there I'm from the province of Taiwan. Because. <laughs> <laughs> And then my my teacher is like, well, well, what kind of dialect does your family speak? And I said,、um, Taiwanhua, and、yeah. and she saying, but that means you're from Fujian, and and I I just repeated what my dad said. We don't know anyone from Fujian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it seemed innocent enough, but、yes. the teacher I remember getting hit in the hand、um, oh. for not feeling. Out, like, actual province that's not Taiwan.、Oh. And now for Help us to grow and continue producing engaging content by making a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com/talkingtaiwan. It was a big deal for her. I. Remember my mom saying like she's the daughter of a soldier that came、oh. with the song, right? And that has become like one of the earliest memories of how that affect、uh, that this like division or this this、uh, dysfunction, I guess, in in that the dictatorship had produced that、uh-huh. affected me personally.、Hmm. I don't know anyone really. Personally, that has been part of the political movement. My family has been very, fairly apolitical.、Mm-hmm. Only under the, like under their breath, they 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 feel a sense of like pride that、mm-hmm. there's a sense of division of Taiwanese who were born here. And I think the division is much more felt from my parents' generation. By the time it got to me, it was more like the waning years that Jiang Jingguo was dying.、Mm-hmm. And,、uh, mm-hmm. And it seemed like there was this transition to、um, to a Taiwanese leadership,、right. like on a legal point. Yeah. Now, now this is interesting、um, that your father told you th-、um, that answer to the questionnaire. Do you think your mother would agree that? To, like, would she have given the same answer? She would have been confused. Like, why?、Yeah. I'm not really sure. So there is like this disconnect sometimes. Like when I made this film about the blacklist. So my film is about. Three graduate students that came in to United States to study in United States in the 70s,、mm-hmm. and how through more freedom and speaking out with other people, and then finding their identity as Taiwanese. Especially, this is pretty, pretty. There are a lot of changes out in the international arena in the 70s.、Mm-hmm. So, it just you can't help avoid. You can't help like. Think that oh I'm not Chinese because in terms of definition of who's going to be recognized as China that Taiwan's already been kicked out of United Nations in 1971、uh-huh. and then the animosity of one of the、um, interviewee was talking about how when you want to form Taiwanese Student Association that people actually threaten his life and then there were harassments of people checking about about each other and then. There's、right. really no formal list except you just know like you're not welcome back. Right. So this is in graduate school. One of your interviewees was trying to set up a Taiwanese student group, and when he was in graduate school, and he was 
threatened. Yeah. yeah. He, he, in his story, he said <coughs> uh, a guy came to his, the founding day and carried a baseball bat and said, I will kill you. Wow. Were there other people there? Were there yeah. witnesses? This person just came right out and said that with and a baseball bat. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's just some pretty outrageous stories, but mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because it's, it's, I think it's even made even more interesting now considering we lived in sort of a, a, a time where there is a right-wing movement where we're, we're very divided in terms of like understanding what's human right, like how do we uh, progress is like, it, it, very challenging for the progressive, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. basically. So there is always these nuance of threats, right? That ha people who uh, like Donald Trump, who likes to be very dictator-like kind of behavior. And it, it just, I think that it made me think about like a lot of things he says, then it's kind of like just words, right? And, but they do have meaning this guy coming to the, to the meeting and pretty much threatening. And I don't think he hurt anybody, but it was, it was sort of, a scary time because these are this, these are people who probably know someone from the older generation who have actually been shot because the first wave of the oppression was actual capital punishment in Taiwan mm -hmm. and so everything is like sort of like I get a sense that you don't really quite know if it's really dangerous or not because mm -hmm. there's no no way to know if, it, if there's officially a list or I just always know that there's people watching you or mysterious so things father. happening to people yeah exactly mm -hmm. so it's 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 this unease and this divisiveness between people and, and as I, I'm trying to expand my film, but I just really wanted to cover the story about how to how people. I want to highlight the people who have chosen to to stand up and speak out mm -hmm. when it's not so clear if if like it's actually good for you or it might actually be dangerous. It's 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 unclear. Like right, but but you know it's going to be dangerous, but right. it's not like there. I think the Taiwan story is so interesting because it's this this natural conflict. Well, maybe not so natural. I like to make it not natural that I <laughs> think that, oh, so as long as there's not a war or it's not as bad as it, it, it can be or there's uh, people are not exactly being shot and or being rode over by the tank, <laughs> like in Tiananmen Square. But the road to progress demands a lot of people saying be able to have a you know, speech or have like an alternative way of highlighting uh, progress from people, not just like top down. Taiwan didn't get its democracy because the dictators died. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not because of that. It's not because somebody else gave us the freedom. I mean, they might it's maybe be maybe because like Taiwan with KMT, like we weakened a lot by uh, losing American support. Maybe mm -hmm. they have been weakened that there was an opportunity, but if people didn't stand up and, and try to try to like basically in a lot of ways, trying to highlight the inhumanity in mm -hmm. some of these government mm -hmm. practices, mm -hmm. 
I suppose that like it's not life and death always. Cause yeah. th- th- that's the argument from the other side. Mm-hmm. Like they end up, they always end up like saying like, why are you making trouble? And I, I, I'm just very interested in that kind of dynamic of like the choices here that people can have mm-hmm. that they can, that a lot of people would choose to be quiet. Oh, sure. So why, mm-hmm. What, what was the, what makes them different? Mm-hmm. Like what was the circumstance? And, mm-hmm. and I was very interested in getting that first person perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, um, I'm curious to know, um, you know, since you grew up in Taiwan, like if your perspective or your understanding or the history that you, since you're so interested in history, the history that you read in Taiwan, if that changed when you came to the U S and your view and what you learned in school about Taiwan. I would say that I didn't learn much about much about Taiwan when I was in school in Taiwan. And mm-hmm. I have to remember when I was in Taiwan, it's before 1991. So that's even before the free elections or right. even before the actual transition to, to Li Denghui, who, right. who was looking more of a reform-minded mind, mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. But, that, but I do remember in 1989, I was in Taiwan. And we saw the big, the big thing was the Tiananmen Square mm-hmm. protest. Right. From Taiwan, we, we, we also watched with a lot of interest. Yeah, that must have been interesting so, what the reaction and feeling was there. Yeah, I mean, Taiwan was going through a lot of transition. It was the end of martial law. I mean, I was a little kid, so, so it was interesting. It was shown, the protest was showing Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So I suppose like the the bombing down thought it was good news <laughs> to cover because this, there were still just three channels in mm-hmm, Taiwan. Mm-hmm. But I did remember a great deal about how the 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 protest was squashed, mm-hmm. like bombing, right? Squashed, but <laughs> kind of squashed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, like. It really was a shocking moment. I think everywhere. I remember Hong Kong, like, was um, I suppose hoping, like, it was 1989, hoping that it would have brought about more reform because mm-hmm. it was quite scary to think about what what if a government would take on its own people. Like, it, it, it was a, it was a very. It, I think that was the moment in China that they they if it had a chance for reform. That was probably it. Right. Mm-hmm. Not for a very long time, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, you, so you didn't learn that much formally about Taiwan growing up in Taiwan, and so yeah. was the, would you say that most of what you learned was when you actually came to the U.S. And how did you do that? That was like a self-learning. It was because of your interest, your own interest, and your own initiative. So to be honest, like I think Taiwanese history is still I, I, I think I still am not an expert. And that's why another in, personal interest of mine to cover these stories and in documentary format was mm-hmm. sort of for my own uh, purpose as well to learn and learn from firsthand um, experience from people who have been through this. Mm-hmm, right. And because when you go to history books, they tend to want to uh, outline with one leader, right? Right. So it's easy to say, oh, this for- this this formation of this government, uh, the Republic of China, 1912, and then three people's principle, like these, these things that you can point to in terms of putting together a history book. 
Mm-hmm. But for Taiwan, I don't. I think it's still it's still something not formalized. I think, and because it's it's contentious in Taiwan. So, but I think the modern history perspective, especially during the 60s and 70s, that it was interesting first through the student student associations of graduate students that came from Taiwan, and that part of the government reacting to them. So that part is history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I'm also making. Uh, my goal is to sort of expand on talking about this blacklist, and to me, it's an idea of the entire period, even today, like the ramification of it, of how does that, how did that create a sense of Taiwanese? Because in 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 face of this political oppression, how did Taiwanese react? So that became a Taiwanese character, I think. So my latest film is focusing on a Taiwanese Canadian, uh-huh. <laughs> and who who it, after the the KMT has abolished has has lifted the martial law and has not abolished the practice of blacklist. So uh, in protest, they moved the World Federation of Taiwan Association Conference, which they happen annually. It always happened outside because most of the leaders there were some kind of intellectuals that were blacklisted uh-huh. by the KMT, or that they are afraid of going back to Taiwan. And so they would go back to Taiwan in some way to get either to go back to Taiwan or smuggle themselves to Taiwan. It was an indirect confrontation. So in a lot of ways, it was kind of like, it reminds me of like how uh, Gandhi trying to march, uh, trying to burn the, the, the colored people car in South Africa, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, and being hit, but then you do not hit back, but you want to show them, you want to bring to light the injustice. You're inviting them to face the injustice that they have created. Mm-hmm. That I thought, I thought was brilliant. So I I want to make a film about it. That's my next topic. Oh, okay. So the film is after the martial law was lifted, the blacklist was still in place. So these people were kind of challenging that idea and trying and going back to Taiwan because this organization, Woofie, used to have to meet outside of Taiwan because of the blacklist. And then after martial law, they moved the annual meeting back to Taiwan. And a lot of uh, people were mm-hmm. arrested because of that, right? Um, so there are two different organizations, the entities. Mm-hmm. So there is uh, uh, the World Federation of Taiwanese Association. I bet a lot of people from that organization were part of WUPI, which is uh, World for, World United for Most and for Independence. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I yeah. think I got the two, two uh, organizations mixed up. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I think like the Taiwanese Federation Association, it, like the is supposed to be sort of like a world, ch- like a, a, a congress, a, a congress that right. Um, not really. I think it's just an entity trying to hook up everybody like from different regions. So there is mm-hmm. like the Toronto Taiwanese right. Association. So all the, overseas to New York. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so all the leadership will come, and oh, other people who wanted to come to the conference could come to the conference, and this is the one way to keep. So a lot of them couldn't go back, and then they can like uh, talk about how much they they all care about Taiwan. There's a lot of uh, Christian components to it too, which I'm learning myself too. That 
I didn't grow up Christian, but I didn't. I, I'm finding out a lot of how uh, the 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 democracy movement is tied to Christian movement, which actually makes a lot of sense. That there's a sense of the pres the Presbyterian branch of like that new thinking, like the John Locke of human rights and what's natural right and uh, the the uh, uh, the fight against injustice. So they they all talked about in their own language that they they talked about injustice,、mm-hmm. but there is a certain brand of like Taiwanese identity as well that if it's not Christian, then I, I'm not Christian myself. But、uh-huh. there's a sense of like looking for dignity,、hmm. and which is fairly universal. And I want to tell that story. And another reason, like I make I start making films about Taiwan is that. I personally am a little bit sick of it when people are saying like, "Oh, but what's the difference between you and China?" Right, right. <laughs> and I just wanted to have something ready that can help them be entertained and absorb some some more nuanced、uh, historical facts about us. My newest film is about、uh, a Taiwanese Canadian. Yeah, I think maybe the, the Canadians have something to teach everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. How、I'm、do we do that? Yeah. Oh, you didn't say. Can you talk a little bit,、uh, just a little bit about that? Like, who's the subject matter? Sure.、Um, so,、uh, Luo Yishi, that's his Chinese name, and、uh, he he adopted、uh, English name Columbus. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and he does that have to do with Christopher Columbus? Did you ask him? <laughs> He just said he picked it. I don't know if he was like watching、uh, cop show or <laughs> oh Columbo maybe. Yeah, yeah. But I I wonder why Columbus too. But、uh, maybe something to do with like Christianity. But that's a Catholic thing. But、sure. I don't know. I think、yeah. he just picked the name and.、Um, And that was he adopted that name for, to get his Canadian passport, and that was part of the strategy of going back to Taiwan、mm-hmm. using a different Chinese name, but using Columbus,、uh, his Canadian passport, getting a visa. I see. Yeah. yeah. So Columbus, he was a Taiwanese Canadian、uh, association association president、uh, in Canada. <laughs> He said he got fairly involved with the Taiwanese、uh, events when、uh, through his Christian group as well, and he he suggested that they have the Tai the、uh, the association annual conference out in Taiwan,、mm-hmm. and then he down trying to get visa to go back, and、mm-hmm. he went back three times. Wow! And the third time he was arrested,、oh. and charged with sedition. Right. So. Possible minimal sentence was ten years. Wow! Except、uh, because of the pressure,、uh, his wife and the Amnesty International adopted him,、mm-hmm. and putting pressure on、uh, the KMT government.、Mm-hmm. That, and after a year, he was released.、Mm-hmm. And because they said like、oh, they changed the charge, they still have to assess his charge whether he should be charged with sedition、mm-hmm. or、uh, intention to incite sedition.、Oh. So in 1988. Uh, Columbus uh, was one of the key organizers for the annual conferences of the World Federation of Taiwanese Association to be the conference to be held in Taiwan. So they went back 1988.、Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were they their visas were ripped out of their passports, and they 
basically say don't come back. But then they decided to have 1989 conference back in Taiwan as well. Wow. But time in, not in Taipei, but in Kaohsiung. Uh-huh. And somehow he got through again. And then he held a press conference to boast about it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> these are, this is pretty funny. Like, yeah. these people yeah. are really looking, you're really, you're really looking for attention at Fun KMT. So. Yeah, yeah, but he was looking like, for something. <laughs> yeah. He was trying to get a reaction. Trying to get confrontation, yeah. yeah. So the second time then, they told him to, that you need to leave in like 10 days, and then decide to stay for 11th day. <laughs> Wow. And then they were arrested and promptly deported. Like, they wow. were dragged out of their car after tear gassing and then drove oh, to their airport and then and went on the flight. And he said before he... So this will be in the longer version of the sure, film. Sure, sure. So yeah. he said he would come back. And then the third time he went back, he would not tell me how. Oh. <laughs> and he was caught this time and uh, promptly arrested and charged for illegal entry. Mm-hmm. And it took a lo- it took a while for them to know what the official charge or like really brought like really indict them mm-hmm. for the charge, and then uh, took about another year for them to decide whether to really charge him with sedition. And they say they were wow. assessing the, whether he should be charged with sedition. And then that's when they say, but in the period of assessment, you're allowed to leave the country. Huh. <laughs> so he left. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So the whole thing took about like uh, in, 19, in 1989, 1990. So the film is trying to like look it's sort of a continuation of what my first film, 10 Minute Bit, that I'm also trying to expand on. I'm trying to see if if I expand on it, then maybe that could become a series um, on public television stations in the United oh, States. Oh, great. Wow, that's great. That's my hope. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, great. It's good to know where you're going with all that. Um, so yeah, okay. Well, I w- really want to thank you for your time for sharing, you know, all of your passion with us today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for uh, inviting me, and it was pleasant. It was great speaking with you. I've been speaking with Christina Hu about her documentary filmmaking. If you enjoyed this episode, go on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.